pad up. It's the Australian Cricket Podcast. And here are your hosts. Welcome to the Australian Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Mentzel, a.k.a. Manners. And joining me for this week's edition of the show, I have James McSmith, who is a journalist, novelist, Australian cricket podcaster. I like how you've finally changed your Twitter bio from Australian Cricket Podcast founder and humble aide to King Zeus, the Golden Wonder Dog. How are you, Macca? I'm good, thanks. Man is Mr. Founder slash creator slash producer slash something else. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you were the first of 34 guests to come on the Australian Cricket Podcast. And I'm humbled and honoured to be at the top of that list. And making his debut in this week's show, we've actually had a debutante last week and this week is a Sydney Morning Herald cricket reporter who plays chess occasionally, rather <laughs> poorly, he might add. His views are all his own, and he's from Queen Bien. Welcome to the show, James Buckley. How are you? Very well, Menace. Thanks for having me. Excellent research, I must say. Yeah, I got delved into the, your Twitter bio for that one. I figure it's a good way. Well to... done. <laughs> well, if you, if you need some chess talk, I'm your man. <laughs> yeah, well, this podcast uh, needs some chess talk. Now, welcome to the show, guys. We've got a lot to get through. We're going to wrap up the Chapel Hadley Trophy. We're going to get to know Bucko or Buckers, which, which I haven't decided which one yet. I think I'm going to stick with Buckers uh, <laughs> so you can have a unique nickname to the Australian Cricket Podcast. We're going to wrap up the Shield Cricket. We've got some listener mail. Lots lots to get through, but before we get into all that, I want to start off with the Cameron White v Trevor Hones argument that sprung up in the media last week. I'm going to go straight off and say I think Hones was out of line. What do you guys think? I just think that it's fantastic that, you know, some uh, cricket was kind of fading out of consciousness. It was going out, wasn't it? And this is... Got it on the back page again. I agree, man. It's, I think um, our national chairman of selectors is out of line. I think they need more media training as well. I mean, if the players are getting all this media training, we had Rod Marsh come out with a few clangers, Trevor Hones now, they, they should be told to keep their mouth shut. What do you think, bucko? Well, it's, it's a fair point. I mean, it is good to have these guys talk to the media, and you're probably right. They could be chiselled a little bit more uh, by Cricket Australia, like a lot of the players are. But I was very interested to hear Trevor Hones' comments on Cameron White. I mean... What is the purpose of uh, of domestic cricket if we're not going to be picking our most productive players for international honours? Even a bloke like Cameron White, who has been around the traps, I mean, he's potentially playing the best cricket of his life right now. But I think that, Benes, doesn't that, and James, doesn't that show the nature of this little adventure we, they had in New Zealand? It just doesn't matter. Why, why are we playing over there? And I know we're going to get into that, but it's pointless. Yeah, but I think what Cameron White's saying is that he feels that sort of generation of players is now being overlooked that are sort of 33, 34, 35 that are out of contention for spots in the Australian side and that it's it's not fair and not being done on performances in domestic cricket. And look, I think it's a it's a murky issue with, as you say, the, the amount of teams at the moment that Australia are fielding. You've got players training somewhere for a test series. You've got a T20 side announced. You've got a one-day side playing. There's about 50 players within any Australian squad at the moment. But... Trevor Hone should know better. You don't bring the selection panel into those sort of arguments like he was, like giving out to Cameron White. It just seemed out of line. So he should have just turned the other cheek, do you think? Yeah, I think he should have just let it go through to the keeper and say we're selecting players based on their performances, and that's it. I guess my problem is, again, and I know we've spoken about this before, man, is, but it, it, what's the logical sort of line of thinking or the narrative here from selectors? Because, okay, they overlook Cameron White, but then Michael Klinger's picked for the T20 squad, who's, you know, the old... I mean, he deserves... You can say he deserves to be there, but, you know, like James says, why has Cameron White then got the punt he or not been selected he's got every right to sort of it's just doesn't there's no rhyme nor reason there's a lot of inconsistency mm. i think in the message from the selectors That's it. which seems to be we want to we want to pick these young players but like you say Klinger gets a guernsey and uh, as we'll talk about a little bit later in the show stoyness kind of just about gets overlooked in favor of say a mitch marsh or a hilton cartwright who are that little bit younger i mean stoyness is only 27 years old himself but like I say, there, there seems to be inconsistency in the message coming from the selectors, and this certainly doesn't help. Well, I'm firmly on Cameron White's side in this one, and uh, we'll see how this plays out. I can't imagine Cameron White being too popular now with the selectors after that little outburst. <laughs> Can I just say, man, is, I mean, look at some, if I was to throw a few names at you, Michael Hussey, Adam Voges, maybe even, uh, say, a Chris Rogers. We've had some very successful test players that have been picked 
much later in life who have uh, who have put the runs on the board in shield level, particularly at first. I, w- I wouldn't put Voges in the same group as Hussey. Voges is obviously, you know, he's had a good record, but against dodgy sides. But I think that what Hans, Hans, sorry, when what's happened here is that perhaps it's a reaction to that that we've got that we've banked on the Hussey and the, these late players coming through, and like Damien Martin did again later in his life. But now. It's not really working, and so they've. It, this is a reaction that they've gone to the Hilton Cartwright. So, what do you think, Manners? I just don't think there should be one rule to sure, govern sure. all selections. I don't think it needs to be a, a policy of youth or a policy of older players with experience. You sort of go case by case, and I just think we've seen the selectors with what the way Mark Wall reacted in the commentary box in the Big Bash the way Rod Marsh reacted before he resigned. They're very testy at the moment, and they don't like it when hard questions are asked of them. And it's easy when Australia's winning to be you know, confident and say what you like to Cameron White, but the Australian selectors haven't performed well over the last two years, so there is merit to questioning their performance. Well, as I guess my problem with that too is, mate, that, okay, well, if they're so testy and they seem so reactionary and seem so like Mark War and like Holmes to, to sort of go, oh, and Rod Marsh get their backs up about certain questions. It makes me wonder what it's like in that selection room that have they spoken about who's sort of ahead of who in selection on, you know, in private on the phone, but do they, or do they just get in there and throw it all together then? And depending on how they're feeling and who they're pissed yeah. off with. Looks more like the latter, it does. doesn't it? They just throw a few names up and see who they decide on any, any given day. They seem to like the, uh, the wild card selection. In, in anything they do, there's always, say, a Mitchell Swepson, for example, in the Tour of India. They Sammy like to... Hazlitt. Well, <laughs> speaking of a random selection. Well, let, let's move on now to the Chapel Hadley Trophy that Sammy Hazlitt toured with Australia. Didn't make it into the third side, but Australia have lost the series 2-0. They lost the Chapel Hadley Trophy, having earlier regained it in Australia, and we've slipped from the number one to the number two ranking in one-day cricket. Not good and probably deserving result considering we sent our B-grade side. Well, you could probably even argue it was a C-grade side, couldn't you, Menas? certainly wasn't our A-grade well, side. Warner wasn't there. Smith wasn't there. I mean, you know, you're down to Wade as Skipper and then Finch. It's just yeah. kind of sums up where it was ranked. Why do we even bother about it? I mean, obviously we're making money out of it. I think it's a bit of diplomacy with the Kiwis to let them buff out their coffers, but it just hasn't been really thought out. No, and fairly predictable that if we send a B-grade side to New Zealand, who are a pretty good ODI side at home, that we'd get beaten. Am I right in saying this Chapel Hadley series or this three-match series in New Zealand was part of the deal to play that day-night yeah, test it was. in Adelaide? Yeah, I think it was, yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, Hasn't panned out too well. I did enjoy the commentary team, though. Uh, there's no commentary critique segment in this show, but Alan Border and Brendan Julian were the two Aussie representatives over there. They're always good to listen to. They kept it interesting. I, I, mate, I love AB. You know I do. But Ian Smith has to be one of the most biased commentators in history, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, but just... I think it's good, though. I like it. Oh... But if you put up Richie Benno as the Doyen, as the Everest, he, he never barracked for a side. So then Smith's down the bottom of the, the hill, isn't he? I can't talk. I'm a very big barracker. I think if I were <laughs> commentating, I'd be okay, barracking yeah, yeah. the Aussies pretty quickly. I like the character, though, in the Kiwi box. Yeah, yeah, Simon yeah, Dool, yeah. Mark Richardson, they'll have a bit of a laugh. Now let's go back to the first one-day international in that series. Australia were thrown into disarray when Matty Wade pulled out of the match 15 minutes before the toss and Aaron Finch was thrown into the mire as captain. He said that it's pretty easy to slot in there if you've got all, all the bowlers know their plans and as captain you just kind of slot in there. But I think it must have been destabilising for the side. Yeah, I can see where you're going with that, Menas, and it was potentially, but I think it was probably more destabilising the fact that 15 minutes out and all of a sudden you're down a wicketkeeper and you've got to throw the gloves to a fella, Peter Hanscom took him, who I don't think he probably even has a set of gloves in his bag. But um, as far as the captaincy goes, I mean, Wade was kind of doing the fill-in job anyway and he never even got his chance, as it turned out, with that back injury. And like you say, the bowling plans were established. Finch was back into the side... I mean, he was dumped for the uh, for the the series against Pakistan, but he'd been around a lot of these guys before at national level. The only thing I guess for him was to adjust and get himself into the captaincy mindset. Maybe maybe it would have worked out okay. He didn't have to sort of toss and turn the night before. And 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 well, well it's interesting because Wade was a very unpopular choice as captain, <laughs> wasn't he? There was some. <laughs> 
very biting tweets sent out about him as captain of Australia during the Australian Open tennis. Mm. And then all of a sudden he doesn't even get a shot. So he mm. copped all that BS for nothing, really. <laughs> He's an easy target at the moment, Matthew Wade, though, isn't he? Well, yeah. when, you, when, look, you, when, he you, when you miss stumpings and you drop catches, you deserve to be, don't you? Yeah, I know. But he's not. A, he doesn't seem like a bad fellow, Matty Wade. Um, so Australia <laughs> lost that first game by six runs. They were chasing 286 and slumped to six for 67. And I almost turned it off then, thinking Australia's going to get... Nowhere near this total, but then a spirited innings from Marcus Stoinis got Australia to within six runs of the New Zealand total. And Australia eventually fell short because Josh Hazelwood was run out at the non-strikers end when I just started to believe that we could uh, win the so game. So it's your fault. <laughs> so Marcus Stoinis made 146. It was an astonishing innings. It's the second highest score for a number seven in one day international cricket. He's the first ever Aussie to score a ton and take three wickets in the same game. Andrew Simons and Shane Watson scored a century and took two wickets but were never able to do the double. What can you say about Marcus Doinis? I mean, you look back at, say, Hilton Cartwright getting picked in the SCG test and you think, this guy Stoinis is a, a much more developed product. Why wasn't he given a go? It's a very good question. He had a very good Big Bash series and I guess just he took his chance like you say, his second one-day international for Australia. And he just he just believed out there. I like the way that he approached it. And I think it was Alan Border maybe at some stage during the commentary. There might have still been uh, 50 or 60 to score and Hazelwood was out there. And he actually said, well, this bloke can't just hit seven or eight sixes. He's got to put some faith into his number 11. And all of a sudden, uh, Stoinis played the conditions. He knew the ground was small and he backed himself. And it was just... Just unfortunate towards the end there. But yeah, I think one... he hit a few sixes there and Porter <laughs> yeah. said, maybe you can hit seven or eight sixes to win this. One thing I was going to say is, uh, ironically in some ways, uh, we talk about whether or not this series uh, sort of had a place on the calendar, but they've injected some life into the one-day international format after a pretty boring summer against Pakistan. I mean, there were plenty of runs scored in that series, but... Uh, yeah, this was a great game. I think these small New Zealand grounds lend itself to exciting cricket. I think small grounds are good for one-day cricket because it sort of cuts out all the singles and it's, you know, people love seeing boundaries and wickets and in those small grounds it's in, conducive to that sort of game. Yeah, you're right, man. It's, I think, you know, when you watch a game at the MCG and the ball's tapped around in the gaps for, what, 25 overs, it does get a bit dull. I, I guess, you know, I, I didn't see all of Stoinis' innings, so I can't really comment. But, you know, I saw a lot of talk about where this sort of rates in the all-time, you know, innings in uh, ODI cricket. For me, uh, Virat Kohli, that game when he smashed 100-odd against Sri Lanka and Hobart, just sort of stands up. Of course, Ricky Ponting's 100 in the World Cup final. But for you guys, where does that Stoinis innings really sit? It's hard to put a, a ranking on it because it, there's sort of, I don't know, it's not a meaningful context. That's the problem, yeah. But I think more shows to me that someone like Stoinis, who's a 27-year-old kid who's had a lot of time to work on his batting and bowling, who is a finished product, might be a better option than someone like Hilton Cartwright, who's 20 and hardly played a Shield game. And I think Greg Chappell and all the selectors have got to be careful where they go with their selections in these young blokes. And someone like Stoinis has come in and taken his opportunity. I, get, I think you're right there, man. It's because if you look at the Australian side, the test side, for example, you've got Hanscom, you know, who's still feeling his way in the side. You've got Renshaw, who's the same, with these young guys trying to come in. So if you've got a Stoinis who can come in for argument's sake, who is, feels more comfortable about his game, about his own, where he is in his cricketing career, that is more stable to the, to the side, isn't it? Than if you have a Hilton Cartwright, who's another rookie, who's another player who is, is just very young and undeveloped. One thing I'll say about the Stoinis innings, you mentioned that where it would rank in terms of great one-day innings. My theory and my take on it is, I think from... I think there was very little pressure on him, which probably sounds a, a bit strange given the, the circumstances of the game and that we were 6 for 60 or whatever it is. But his mindset all of a sudden turned to, well, all I'm going to try and do here is protect my tail end batsman and hit boundaries. And I think that probably distracted him enough from, from you know, I'm out in the middle playing my second ODI for Australia in an impossible situation. It was just a case of sea ball, hit ball... <laughs> And, and away he went. And, I mean, hats off to him because that'll, that will give him confidence. Unfortunately, though, we probably don't see him in an Australian jumper now until maybe June or July. He's not even in the T20 side that we'll talk about later. So 
go figure that one. I wouldn't be surprised if Stoinis ends up in India somehow as a an all rounder if they get him over there. Can't because they put him in the T Twenty side? I mean, look, well, they should be able. They to. just put him in there. I mean, it's yeah. farcical. And Maka, I want to move on now well, I just from one to... farcical selection okay. to a farcical scene Uh-oh. in the second one day international. You still haven't. You still haven't given it to Hazelwood about getting run out. You've just well... let that go. <laughs> You've dealt with it. Well, no. Okay, Hazelwood got run out at the non-strikers end. Abysmal running. What can you say? I think you know we've spoken about this off air previously. That I think Menes, you're right in saying that he was so desperate to get off the off the strike for the next over, wasn't he? That he was backed up too far. It's stupid, but you can see what he was trying to do. But it yeah. was still unforgivable. Yeah. I feel sorry for Hazel Nut, but yeah, from farcical <laughs> selections to farcical scenes at Napier. The second one day international was rained out when basically the whole afternoon was sunny in Napier and the rumour circulating behind the scenes is that the Kiwi groundsman watered the outfield the day before the game and drenched it because it had been quite dry conditions and then the rain came so all of a sudden it got a double watering so hats off to the Kiwi groundsman (laughs) I think Napier is axed from international cricket that's the second rain out in a row where conditions haven't been good robbed the crowd of seeing Australia v New Zealand but also meant the third one day international was a, a basically a deciding rubber. If Australia won the game and squared the series, won all, they retained the Chapel Hadley Trophy. And if they lost the game, then they would cough up the Chapel Hadley Trophy, which they did. So in the third one-day international in Hamilton, lovely ground. I don't know if you only saw it, but one thing, hats off to the Kiwis. They do village grounds really well. They look great. I'd love to go there for a tour. Well, the one in well, well, you look at Wellington, the Basin Reserve, it's fantastic as well, isn't it? Yeah, I think I'd love to duck over there for a test match and sit on the hill, chase a few sheep. Had to get that in there. Um, All right, so let's move on now to that third ODI. New Zealand batted first and made 281 on the back of a Ross Taylor ton. Australia probably leaked an extra 20 runs at the end there, which I think in the end was crucial to the result. And then chasing that total, the key difference was between the Australian innings and the New Zealand innings is none of the Australian batsmen were able to go on with the starts that they got. Finch 56, Head 53 and Stoinis 42 didn't capitalise and Australia lost the game by 24 runs. Interesting to note that Stark and Cummins put a 50 partnership on in 19 minutes off 30 balls and it got pretty tight at the end there and Cummins is a, a really good solid low order hitter James and I saw in the big batch a couple of times Cummins plunking the ball into the the stands at Spotless Stadium so he's certainly got potentials and all rounder Trent Bolt took six for 33 he nailed us straight lost the Chapel Hadley trophy series over that was it what did you think of that last game I don't. I, I want to say I don't think the trophy would have even been taken out of the cabinet, would have it? So it's just sitting there again, yeah. I mean, just on the trophy itself, the Chapel Hadley series. I mean, in years gone by, this was a this was a pretty important series, I think, and a pretty important trophy to be playing for. Surely the value's been diminished a little bit now, given that we've just you know shoved this three match one day series into the kind of this one week window at the end of the summer before we go to India and after the Pakistan series. I think it's, personally, I think that takes away from the value of it a little bit. Of course, and we've we've won it back earlier in the summer. We've lost it again now. Most fans will just forget about the whole Chapel Hadley trophy because, <laughs> you know, it should be like a every one year here, one year there kind of thing each summer. And so you can hold the trophy for a little while. I mean, we, we held it for six weeks. It was but it's, I mean, it, obviously they're two of the most famous names in cricket from either country. I think you're right. There should be a bit more respect, John. But at, at the end of the day, it's about money, isn't it? And I can, I can understand that. Anyway, series over. Weeks cricket in New Zealand finished. Australia leave with their tail between their legs. Now let's move on to the second segment of today's podcast, and this is the eight for eight segment. And This is a stat from Andy Zaltzman, and this is about England's collapse last week to India in the T20 game. In more than 6,000 T20 games, international and domestic, England's 8-for-8 collapse in the third T20 international versus India is the second ever worst eight-wicket collapse in T20 cricket. Excellent stuff from England that crashed out of India. Do you think we'll do better than that? Like eight for four or something? Well, you don't want to say too much because you're worried about what's coming, man. Is that the... Exactly. <laughs> it would be tough to beat that, though, wouldn't it? I had to stick the boot in, though. Uh, so in, in honour of that eight for eight performance by England, we've got a new segment 
where I'm going to put eight questions to our newest panellist, James Buckley, and get to know where he stands on some of the big issues on cricket. You ready, James? Ready, Bucko? And let me just say, excellent statistical trawling. That eight for eight (laughs) after 6,000-plus international and domestic T20 games. It's a great record. Well done, England. Now, the first (laughs) of eight questions for you, Bucko. Where do you stand on Christmas Day Big Bash cricket, for or against? I'm for it. I really like the idea. There's definitely potential there, I think, from an attendance point of view and certainly from a television ratings point of view. I mean, we were averaging over a million viewers in the Big Bash, I think, this season. It'd be like three million on Christmas Day. I reckon you could really (laughs) significantly improve on those numbers alone. And, And why not? We play on every other day of the year and or almost every other day of the year. And you'd be uh, happy to work on Christmas Day? Well, I'm working Christmas Day anyway. There you go. I think what I was doing Sydney to Hobart, I think, this Christmas. So there's still uh, there's still journos that'll work. It's Christmas Eve is the one that you don't tend to work on at a newspaper. Mate, I'm glad you answered in the affirmative to this, because Menes has been banging on about this since the start of the podcast, and I fear that if you said no, you wouldn't have been on again. So <laughs> well done. Sudden lots yeah, of that was, a sticky, that was a sticky wicket. And now, are you a fan of more day-night test cricket? No, 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 certainly not more. Two, two over this uh, summer was possibly too, too many. Maybe too, I, too many? Maybe we could bear one. I, d- I mean, I'm a traditionalist men, as, as you know. Welcome and to the show. I, I, <laughs> personally, I, I can't seem to get into it. It just seems like a novelty to me and, uh, you know, the pink ball. And, I mean, it's, it's slightly different. It seems to swing around a little bit more, particularly in that last session. Maybe I need to expand my horizons a little bit, but... Uh, I very much prefer the red ball game, play it through the day, over five days. That's test cricket. That's what it's all about. Uh, I understand the Cricket Australia perspective. You know, it's good for, for attendance again. It's good for very good for TV ratings, uh, particularly on some of those week nights. But I, I just I just can't seem to get into it myself. Well, it's well, different to day day test cricket. I mean, it has a different rhythm. Well, I think the you know how when we play the Ashes next summer. That's going to be go through the roof. It's got to, doesn't it? I think the, the day night test. The, sorry, the day night test is just going to the go Adelaide absolute test. gangbusters. It'll be a full house. You know, people across the world will be tuning in for Australia. And I understand your concerns, but James, I think the cricket's got to move with the times. And I and I I wonder if it would stay to that day format. That the time might come when. You know, obviously, Channel Nine's weighing up about where it is and what it's doing. The Big Bash first Test cricket. Could the time come that the Big, ba- you know, like we have in England, or the Big Bash is on free to air, but you've got to go watch Test cricket on pay per view? You know, I think for me, for mine, cricket has to stay with the times, and maybe it was overdoing it a little bit this summer with two games. It, it rated well, didn't it? The Pakistan one at the Gabba, and I think next summer when the Poms are here, it's just gonna. It's going to be absolutely huge. Yeah, yep. I agree with that, Mac. I mean, there's definitely, like you say, the TV ratings are going to be massive when mm. England are here. Uh, and, and maybe it is a time to move with the times. And, uh, I mean, as we've seen now, the television networks have an increasingly larger say in uh, in the summer of cricket, in the calendar, and, and the scheduling of the game without trying to open a new can of worms. You know, has that gone too far, perhaps? I'm not too sure. But uh, it is it is governed like that, like most professional sports now are around the world. The TV networks have a huge say on how things are played out. So I would say to sort of conclude on all that, I think it's here to stay. Uh, and maybe people are just people like but myself are just going to get used to it. you're not a fan of more day-night test cricket? Certainly not more, no. I mean, maybe maybe make it a one test in the, in the summer. Adelaide seems to work quite well for that. I think it's, going to, I think it's here to stay. What about then four-day test cricket? Another... Uh, option mooted to to transform Test cricket and play basically Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, four days. James, tell me. Well, Buckers, as you know, they're talking about uh, you know introducing this this two year Test series, which will involve uh, the nine top ranked Test nations and then the three underneath, which I think would be Zimbabwe, Ireland, and Afghanistan. It's still early stages. Perhaps you could play a four-day test uh, for those three lower-ranked nations maybe when they play each other. But uh, I think you need the five days, really. When you, when you put two of the top teams up against each other, you know, say in India versus a, a South Africa, maybe in Australia versus England, even in the Ashes, can you imagine the Ashes series being uh, played over four-day test matches? No, not at all. I'm not a fan of four-day tests. I think. How well, many more draws would you get? Well, Matt, what would have happened in Sydney this earlier this year, oh. you know, and, and imagine you've got a decider in the ashes and it rains a little bit 
and the fourth three day test. Yeah, exactly. Well, so, and the fourth fifth day comes, and it's beautiful. You know, can I, we go to six day tests? <laughs> expand them. Well, that's yeah. you know yeah. Tuesday we to one, Sunday. We were once there, mate. Yeah, <laughs> I know you're missing the cricket already, aren't you? Um, I know. Test if, withdrawals. If there was no fifth day, uh, that Gabbard test against Pakistan. I mean, that fifth day of Test cricket was uh, one of the most exciting yeah. fifth days of Test cricket we've seen for for some time. So, Bucko says. No to four-day tests. (laughs) Now, you mentioned the overall test championship with nine and nine teams in the top and then three down below. I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think it will happen? Yes. You think it will happen? I think it will happen. And I think uh, it's a logical progression. Just to... There's so many test series played around the world right now that cricket fans in Australia and elsewhere are not interested in because our countries aren't playing in those test matches, which is understandable to no a context. degree. There is, that's right, there is absolutely no context. So when New Zealand plays Bangladesh, no one gives two hoots in Australia. But if there is a, a two-year championship, <laughs> if there is a points table, a league table or something along those lines that you're playing towards, then all of a sudden it does gain a bit of context and it gains a bit of meaning and it might have ramifications for your own country. And I think it... It's got the potential to improve Test cricket uh, across the world. And you think the ICC will bring this in? Well, I think they're, they're talking the pretty seriously about it. Yes, I do. I think, I wow. think they will eventually so got go. I've no faith that the ICC make any changes that are good for the game. So, Mez, I think they'll bring it in, but it'll be, it, they'll eff it up somehow. And it'll be, you know, Australia will miss out on making the finals or something because they yeah, lost a test in Napier to New Zealand. But I think, again... Napier cops a serve again. (laughs) Cricket's got to advance itself and they've got to do it and just see how it goes, don't they? Yes. Next question for Bucko. Was Andre Russell's one-year doping ban appropriate? Uh, Yes, I think it was. This is a a sticky issue, probably the way to put it. Uh, And we know that the governing bodies like WADA and ASADA crack down very, very hard on the potential of doping in sport. Now, it's important to remember here that he hasn't been convicted of doping, which is the first thing I think we need to say. He's been, essentially, he's been found guilty of, of not, what was it, reporting his whereabouts? He or, missed three, three tests. He missed three tests. So he's missed three I, tests. I think it's so, very now, fishy. Yeah, It's very fishy, and I mean, you, people are going to draw those conclusions. But in fairness to the bloke, he hasn't been convicted and he hasn't uh, returned. I mean, this is a legal happened. background that you're not telling us. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, this you, is why you re- be representing Mr. Russell sometime in the near future. This is why the ban is appropriate because it's important. I mean, like I say, these testing agencies they want 24-hour access to these players all year around, and I think it's fair enough. It's the way to do it. And doping in sport is a massive problem, as we've seen across multiple different sports over the last couple of years. Personally, that's, I don't think that's going away anytime soon. So it's important to come down with a hardline stance and try and weed this sort of thing out. And if someone's dodging protocol, then I think it's fair enough that an example is made. I mean, he's, he could have, as far as I understand, he could have received, what, maybe a two-year or even a four-year ban. Well, man, that, man that's, I want to know what you think, mate, because he has been let off easy here. And like you say, he's missed three tests. He hasn't just missed one and slept in or not put his whereabouts. So really, if he, he, could, he should have got two years at the least. And... You know, there's a history, as we've seen in the Olympic arena, of doping in Jamaica. I'm not saying they're all cheats, but obviously the Jamaicans I might had get a, a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the Jamaicans recently always had an Olympic gold medal taken off them. I just think, and suddenly when he's not on it, how bad was his big bash? It, it, it's very, very strange to miss three of those. Well, I look through the prism of watching a lot of baseball, and performance-enhancing drugs have unfortunately, you know, infiltrated baseball to a quite a high extent. And my understanding is that something like T20 cricket, if you're a player, you could benefit from performance-enhancing drugs. I don't think test cricket, even one-day cricket, it's going to be as apparent. But if you're a T20 gun for hire, performance-enhancing drugs can help you with just strength, being able to hit the ball further, recovery time, so being able to play in all these tournaments all year, your fast twitch muscles, that just that last-minute um, whip through the ball. So I think that a player like Andre Russell is a prime candidate for someone who think, oh, you know, if I juice a little bit and then I can get some awesome contracts in T20 cricket and make X million dollars for the next few years, why not? And you know, there's all these masking agents and, and things you can take so you can't get caught. So I think the questions have to be asked, and I think it was appropriate. All right, turning to a bit more of a bucko question, that one. <laughs> now, back to number six of our eight-for-eight eight segment. Who was your favourite war, Mark or Steve? And I think you can tell a lot about someone by who their favourite war was. (laughs) 
Well, I'm curious to get your opinion on this, but I'll, I will, uh, I'll tell you. Obviously, never listen to the show, because you know otherwise. No, I mean, your opinion on what you think I would prefer. Oh, yeah, What you think there's I would a, prefer. There's, there's a picture behind you that might answer Danny the question. Danny War. Danny War. <laughs> uh, Dean what about Wall. Dean? <laughs> Either way. No, nah, look, I grew up, uh, my favourite player was always the great Stephen Roger War. Excellent. Uh, it's funny, I had um, a cousin who's about my age on my mum's side, and he was always uh, Mark, Mark War. He had the V100 Slazenger, yeah. and, and I was always Steve War. It's because I, he played cricket, well, he batted, if I put it this way, he batted the way I used to do, but he had uh, a he much larger <laughs> array of <laughs> strokes, and he could <laughs> score runs. I just used to sit around at the crease and try not to get out and just plot away off the back foot defensively. But uh, I love the way he played the game. And I love that, that true grit that he applied when he was at the cruise. Menas, I want to know what it says about me. that I My, I, my favourite used to be Mark War, but now it's Steve War. Well, you've obviously matured and changed. <laughs> I think I'm capricious or... Yeah, who knows? So did you think I was a Mark War or a Steve War? Oh, James, I hadn't really given it a lot of thought. I had your peg, I had your peg when, Mark War. Well, I had your peg Steve War. When, like when him, you said you were a traditionalist, when you said mm. you were a traditionalist, I thought maybe Stephen Roger. Yeah. Buckers, question seven. Two to go. Are you in favour of Big Bash expansion? More teams, more games. More work for you. <laughs> that's a good question. Thank um, you. <laughs> that's a very good question because the problem Cricket Australia has here is that they've created a monster almost, and I think they're at a point where they're not entirely sure what to do with this competition. If you expand it in terms of adding more teams, then you get to a stage where potentially you just dilute the talent that little bit, and the games aren't quite going to be as good. Uh, I like the idea of playing more games and maybe trying to squeeze in Mind you, I mean, we've got a short window that we've we've got to deal with at this stage, so that might be something that needs to be looked at. But I like the idea of maybe playing an extra round or two and trying to squeeze in a couple of extra games before finals. I think they play eight at the moment each now. Maybe you could get that up to nine or ten. This idea of maybe playing a game in Hong Kong or, or elsewhere, try and move the game out like that. I quite like that. In terms of expanding uh, the amount of teams in the competition, There'd have to be a cap on how far you go with that. Maybe you could, maybe you could go for one or two extra over the next couple of seasons and see where that sits. But like I say, you dilute the talent a little bit. You give a few of these younger state cricketers in Australia more of a chance to showcase their opportunity, and no doubt, no doubt, you're going to unearth some hidden talents by doing that. Where would you go? Q Town, Queensland. <laughs> <laughs> Queenvin is crying out uh, yeah. for big a big bash, bash team. Canberra. <laughs> You'd play on a gravel pitch down there, wouldn't you? <laughs> um, I guess... The Darwin Daredevils, <laughs> that's my team. Canberra and uh, and Geelong, maybe, I guess, would be two logical locations now. You've got your two in Melbourne, your two in Sydney. But I, uh, I sense some hesitancy in well, your voice about this one. You're very firm about a no four-day test, no more day-night test, but this one you're a little bit... So I'm saying you're not a fan of expansion you're nervous about it yeah and i'm i think sometimes you can get a little bit carried away with it and that's a problem like i say they've kind of created this monster if they leave it exactly how it is right now it's going to be successful i think for many years and now it's not going to be successful forever and it's important to remember that that the big bash will have a shelf life of some length how long that is we don't know just yet i just think maybe you can you can take it too far if we end up in two or three years' time, all of a sudden we have 12 Big Bash teams or 14 Big Bash teams, then the attendance are going to come down, the TV ratings are going to come down, the quality of play is going to come down. I think at the moment it's a nice little number. You get your two imports in. You know, As we saw this season, they come and go as required, and then you can bring in a few more imports, like, say, a Carlos Brathwaite, uh, who was very good, a Colin Munro, who was not quite so good, but... You know, he played a nice little innings at the Gabba there in the semi-final to see to show us what he has uh, in terms of ability. I think maybe they just need to go into this uh, erring on the side of caution. So you don't think we should go Major League Baseball route 162 <laughs> game season per team? Play five a day. Love it. Sounds good to me. And finally, this is a sort of two-pronged question to finish our eight-for-eight eight segment, Bucko. KP was fined $5,000 for his on-field comments about the shocking umpiring decision in the Big Bash semi-final. I think he was mic'd up to Channel 10 and they asked him on the field and he said he thought it was a shocker that Sam Whiteman was given not out when he edged one. He was fined $5,000. Double question, was the fine fair enough? And should we be miking up players on the field anymore? Okay, yes, the fine was fair enough. 
And uh, Kate... why? But why? Let me ask you this. He's on the field. You're emotional. I think it was unfair. Well, yeah, but I mean, you set a precedent then, don't you? All of a sudden, whoever is mic'd up has the right to question the umpire's decision moments after it's made. The thing is, maybe the commentary team threw him under the bus a little bit by asking him that question. The players know that he's crossed the line there in terms of what you can and can't say about the umpires. Macca, what do you think? Uh, mate, I just... I, I can understand James' point about, you know, setting a precedent, but I'm with you, mate. I think he's been asked in the heat of the moment. There, You know, he's... He's been gracious enough or good enough to actually be one of those players who said, yeah, and he's embraced that being on the field, hasn't he? Saying, I'll oh, come on and everything. They said to him, mate, what is it? Well, it, was, it was a shocker. You know, I, th- I think yeah, I think it was a bit tough. I mean, 5K is nothing to KP, though, is he? he wouldn't even think twice Melbourne about Melbourne stars are probably paid yeah. for, I mean, <laughs> guarantee. And then Brad Hodge had that issue with Mark Howard where Mark Howard gave him a stat mid-game, and then Hodge said, oh, I'm going to make a bowling change now after hearing the stat. So I'm saying, should we even be miking up players when you think what happened with KP, what happened with Hodge? $100 million is wagered on almost every Big Bash game now. Is it, have we gone too far? No, I like the miking up of the players, and I think that brings a lot to the coverage. And that's, that's part of the reason why so many people love the Big Bash. And I think that's wrong. We, but we saw, remember when uh, I think it was the Stars were playing the Strikers and, and KP had that little, he was batting against Kyron Pollard and... Well, Pollard had some strapping around his fingers or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and we could hear KP yeah, he giving was, his live commentary about what he was doing. That's right, asking Pollard what was happening. And I thought that was fantastic. That was an, an example of where the miking up worked quite well. We were People in their lounge rooms were essentially a part of that mid-pitch conversation. And, and I think that was, that's Couldn't quite entertaining. The players? Like, every one of them has a little tiny bug, and we don't tell them anyone. <laughs> Turn them on when gold comes on. Now, there's an idea. Now, I think... I think the miking up the players is here to stay. Maybe they need to nut out a few a few little ground rules so so these sorts of things don't happen. But they were probably two incidents over the course of the whole season. Mark Howard, uh, I think, will happily admit that he was in the wrong. He went too far, and he probably regrets that. Uh, shouldn't have said it. Uh, the KP thing, as we've discussed, that's a contentious issue. Um, it was probably worth the five grand fine for the entertainment value. And, I mean, the bloke edged it, so... What he said was probably mm. true. But, man, as a course, Howard's, you know, he's giving information to the player on the field that he wasn't already a party to, and it really does bring into question those murky issues of gambling, of spot fixing, doesn't it? Of course I'm not saying that these guys are doing it, but it starts to drag that in. It's obviously such a problem in cricket that it really does throw up some questions. But, you know, the miking of the players is something that really brings the, like you said, the big bash into your lounge room that the AFL can't really do, the NRL can't do, the A-League can't do. That's where cricket really, you know, it's re- you're right there, you know, you're right there. I noticed they improved the pitch side interviews. I don't know if you noticed after a little while, they stopped grabbing the players as they were coming off and they would allow them to go take their kid off, have a drink, cool down, then they would conduct the pitch side interview, which is better. Uh, but I, look, I think there's a way to go with hooking up players. I think what happened with KP is an example of where if you catch someone in the heat of the moment, then they might say something they regret later on. Well, listeners, that was the 8 for 8 segment. Well done, Bucker. You passed the test. Steve <laughs> Wolf fan, traditionalist. Uh, you, can, you can definitely come back again. I just want another mug. Thank you. <laughs> now, listeners, we're going to have a very short break, and I could not resist playing this for you. This is, this is a little bit of a musical interlude from Shane Watson, Australia's T20 Player of the Year, and he's starting a new business where he's coming up with songs to help kids learn about you know playing sport and it's called let's activate have a listen to this from shane watson put your arms up above your head you're gonna make a little diamond shape love it when shane watson has a bit of a sing uh that was from the cricket australia podcast <laughs> thanks for that um you don't like it when what i sing oh he's just trying to sell something isn't Mate, he's he? a better good, singer than good me. luck to him yeah that's true <laughs> All right, so let's move on now. I had some listener mail, and it's sort of about the Super Bowl. And as it's Super Bowl day here in Australia, I thought it would be an appropriate email. Now, this email is from Brian, and he starts off by saying, I'm an American and grew up with the NFL championship being played at a neutral site. All year since they announced the site, the NFL has talked about the road to Houston for the Super Bowl. The host city is always stoked to get the Super Bowl. Now, he goes on to suggest that could the Big Bash do something like that, a neutral site, and have a real event-style atmosphere for the Big Bash final? 
I personally don't think a neutral Big Bash final could work because Australia is such a large country and, you know, you can't imagine many Scorchers fans travelling to, say, Melbourne for a, a BBL final. What do you guys think? Well, that's a tough one because there's, I think there's, there's certainly positives on both sides of the ledger. You raise a good point there saying that, you know, say Sydney was to host and Perth and Adelaide were in the final, you would struggle to get, uh, I think, enough Scorchers and Strikers fans over to the SCG to fill that stadium. Uh, so that's a good point there. But on the other hand, it, it potentially takes care of the, the issue of, well, what about the women? You know, this idea of do the women deserve a standalone final? Do they lose an advantage? We saw the Sixers who finished on top, won their way through to the final and had to play over in Perth against the Scorchers. If you did have a neutral venue, as uh, as we've seen in the NFL with the Super Bowl... Then everyone loses. No one gets a home final. Well, that's right, but it, it sort of takes care of that, well, we're maybe favouring a team that doesn't deserve to be favoured in the women's side of the draw. The other side is, well, you know, you earn the right to play a home final, as we see in, what say, the Super Rugby competition, I think, does that. But interesting to note that the NRL, the AFL, and most uh, sporting competitions around the world... Uh, don't offer a home final or a home grand final. I'm, I'm struggling to think of one that does, mate. Yeah, well, it's only only really mm. the Super Rugby, I think. And, yeah, I mean, what the Super Bowl does in the neutral venue. And so what do you ba- think, Macca, yes or no? Well, I, I think, like, James, I'm, I think there are pluses and minuses of both. But I think really for next season, and uh, they, they could really do it, the Cricket Australia. Obviously, we've got the Perth Stadium opening up next year. Hopefully, we'll be ready for the cricket. I think that'd be a fantastic chance to have it there and to say, we're going to play it out there. That way the women are obviously taken care of as well. Imagine the Sydney Thunder played the Sixers in the BBL final and you've got it stuck over in bloody Perth. Well, that's that's the issue. And I think think places like Adelaide, Perth and Brisbane are probably as parochial as anywhere. I think if you had, say, the Stars and the Scorchers at the SCG, I still reckon you'd get a pretty decent crowd. And at the MCG, I mean, they've shown... They show up to most things, but I still think, you know, I'm not saying to do it, but to open that, get that Perth Stadium, If imagine that was the first game at the Perth Stadium, they'd sell it out. It probably won't be, it'll probably be the Ashes or something, but if it was something like that, and then, you know, if you had the opening of the Adelaide Oval or something like that, because that's what they do with the NFL, isn't it? That, that you know, San they Diego... They Well, they build a new... If you build a new stadium, you can hold a Super Bowl, so it pays for itself. So obviously, we're in a different situation. Yeah, I'm not so sure about it, but you mentioned the women's cricket and the fact that they're having an issue with the final, with being coupled with the men. Now, in this email from Brian, he suggests that a way of building up the women's BBL final will be to, to make up more of a spectacle. And he, he actually says here that he doesn't think Australians are into the spectacle as much as the Americans, and that's true. We just can't do the pageantry and the glitz and the glamour that they do. But would we potentially, if we were to develop a day where yeah, the women's BBL final, then a big halftime show, you know, some of Australia's biggest stars, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, could drop a few people in there, be good for their marketing. Yeah, we'll and get, get the former Kate Fisher involved. Exactly. And then, <laughs> then after that, you've got the men's final and try and encourage people to go there for the whole day, women's and the men's. I think that's a good idea. I, I love it. Love you know, it. I just worry, though, if if they could make it work. You know, you wouldn't want a halftime show with nobody there. So you, somehow you have to pump it up. But that, that, to me, is a valid way of building up a bigger day. This was uh, an interesting observation, I think, uh, from last Saturday at the Wacker Big Bash League finals day. I think the women's kicked off at about quarter to 11 in the morning local time. Now, that's obviously to marry up with uh, with Eastern television times. Uh, but then there was a gap of uh, maybe two hours, I think, before the men. So by the time the women's game finished, there was barely a couple of thousand in the crowd. I mean, the women... Would a, would a, a musical act get people in there early? It it potentially does because it, it takes care of, in a way, that halftime break. But the break still needs to be shortened, I think. And maybe you could do that. You shorten the break to an hour or so. Have a great show. Get yeah, get a get a musical act or, or something like that in the middle, just to just to sort of warm people. I don't up. know any current Australian musical acts to suggest. Well, mate, the problem, of course, you do have. What if the women's game goes to super over and you've got it's another half hour that's going to take up, isn't just it? Better for the ratings, mate. I better know that, but then TV. what do you do about the halftime show? Now that's a good point because you have to build that in. <laughs> but that's that's why, and we go back to saying that the TV networks dictate so much of this. The reason why there was such a, a big gap was because uh, that's what yeah. you know Channel Ten needed to do uh, to be able to host both of those games and be able to televise both of those games. Wouldn't be a bad idea if 
someone flew me over just to check out the Super Bowl one year and see how much of that we could bring to the Big Bash in the future. Who who might fly over? I don't know anybody. And who, who would who would you like to see um, for this halftime show, man? As I'm I'm very intrigued. I don't know. I just like to see the don't, way. Don't say do Bruce Springsteen <laughs> or Bob Dylan because Lady the kid, Gaga. The kids don't like. That. They didn't know who Lady Gaga was three minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that was a great email from Brian. I think Australia's a little bit far from having something like the Super Bowl, but it's worth considering, put the two games tighter together, have a show in the middle, make it a day. Well, like but, you said, it's a, it's a it's sort of celebration of cricket, isn't it? And it, I think it's a day, you know, the AFL have their grand final, the league have their grand final. It's such a fantastic day that if cricket could have that as well, like soccer does with its cup finals, why not? Well, very good email from Brian. Great Spark some great discussion. Now we've got the Have A Go Your Mug promotion. I want to go through this and thank all the entrants for entering this week. If you can go onto iTunes and leave a review for the podcast or whatever app you listen to the show on, then email me at oddscricketpod at gmail.com and you will go in the draw for a Have A Go Your Mug mug. If you, go, if you can sign up to Patreon for $5 a month or more, you will get a mug straight away. So this week... We had four entrants for the Have A Go Your Mug. So thank you to the four of you who left a review. We had Brian from the US. I think the same Brian who sent an email. Meg, Lockie and Tall and True all left reviews. So I'm going to uh, put all the names in a, in a Have A Go Your Mug mug and James is going to draw the winner out. Right, yeah, mate. We're ready to go here. This is quite an honour, man. You've got your mug. I do have my mug. It's fantastic. <laughs> Who's the winner? The winner is Meg KG. Well done, Meg. Well done. What's she written? Now, this is my kind of podcast. Not only is it enjoyable just to kick back and listen to, the guests, along with Menas, are knowledgeable and intelligent about the game without dissolving into a boys' locker room inside joke. Keep up the great work, and I personally think we will surprise everyone in India. The series result will be one all. Thanks, Meg, for that great review. Very Thank po- you. Fantastic. I like the one all uh, prediction. I hope it comes true. So, listeners... Please email the show, ozcricketpod at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook as the Australian Cricket Podcast. We're on Twitter at ozcricketpod. Remember, thanks to all the Patreon subscribers. If you want to join that select bunch of people that sponsor the show, go onto the Patreon website and find the Australian Cricket Podcast. And we'll be back in a moment. It's gone for the hook. Man getting underneath it, and he's taken it. McGrath the catcher, it's curtains for India, it's all over. Australia are delighted. They've won the first test match here in the series. You're listening to the Australian Cricket Podcast. That was Australia winning a test match in India back in 2004 in Bangalore, the first test of the series we won. And I hope we can recreate those scenes by winning one test in India, Man, as per Meg's I, prediction. I really think you're setting yourself up for a fall here, mate. I'm, I don't mean to be Mr. Gloom and Doom, but we sat in these chairs, I don't know how long ago, five months ago, and we loudly and um, with much... Uh, Confidence. Predicted yes, pre- a 3-0 predicted a 3-0 thumping of Sri Lanka. The other problem was we thought it'd go the other way, mate. I think... There's some tough times coming in India. James, can I just get a quick... I'm going to reveal a couple of interesting statistics to you from, uh, I guess, the past 12 months. So the first one comes from Alan Border Medal Night. And uh, what, you would, what they do, as you would know, is when you go into the media room beforehand and they give you the embargoed result, they also give you a page of compiled statistics over the test, uh, the one-day internationals and the T20 internationals. But they also merge all them together so that they combine, they combine all three formats for each player. And they did that again on this occasion. And, and you have a quick look down the list. And I think from memory, it was David Warner topped... Well, David Warner and Steve Smith topped it in terms of runs scored. David Warner scored nine centuries uh, during the 12-month voting period. And that was uh, that was before, I think, the 100 he hit in the Sydney ODI against Pakistan, but would have included his SCG Test 100. Now, Steve Smith had seven centuries over the uh, the same 12-month period. And then there was a big gap back to... I think it was uh, Usman Khawaja and Peter Hanscom had both scored two centuries over that 12-month period. And then there was a handful of blokes that had scored one tonne, and that was it. So, I mean, if you take Warner and Smith out of that equation... Now, one other thing there... Have we there, picked Warner and Smith? Have we picked our full-strength side for India, or are they, re- <laughs> or are they resting? Look what happened in New Zealand. <laughs> if they rest, we're in trouble. Mm. The other thing now, I, I haven't got the numbers in front of me here, but uh, David Warner's record in India 
I don't think he's scored a hundred. I think he's scored a test hundred certainly. No, he hasn't. He didn't uh, on that last tour. So uh, as good as he is, and as good as he has been going, and well done to the way he's batted over the last twenty-four months. He's been absolutely fantastic. If he does not step up in India, then all of a sudden, based on those numbers I've just given you, Steve Smith has a huge responsibility, and. I mean, we're taking as good as these guys are. Peter Hanscom, uh, Matt Renshaw. I mean, Usman Kawada is is just about established himself, but he's he doesn't have a great record in the subcontinent. No, either. and he can't play spin. We even no. saw in the fifth test against the Pakistan, he tried to hit the Pakistani leggy all over the place and really struggled. So I don't know. I think we're going to struggle. Hmm. It's no one's confident, but that's good. Look, we can only be um, that's it. Surprise now if Australia do prepare well. For, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. So we're going to end this show. And being a traditionalist and a cricket tragic bucko, then you'd love a bit of Sheffield Shield talk. This is where we sort the men from the boys. This is where people like Gav Joshi just stand up with their intimate knowledge of state cricketers. Is, is, is this the segment that Joe treats with disdain? Perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> now let's start with the Duke ball. The Duke ball was used in the last Shield round and will be used for the rest of the Shield summer. And Ed Cowan has made some surprisingly frank comments about the Duke ball. And I don't think people from Kookaburra will be too happy. This is what Ed Cowan has said. I think the Dukes is a far superior cricket ball to the Kookaburra in terms of the quality of contest between bat and ball. He said, they certainly stay in shape, they're harder for longer, they consistently swing, there's a little bit there for the bowlers all day if you're good enough to bowl well, but you can get some runs if you're, if you're disciplined with the bat. From Australian cricket's point of view, I'd love Cricket Australia to look really hard at using Duke's balls in test cricket in Australia because I think the quality of the ball is superior. Very strong comment from Ed Cowan, obviously not sponsored by Kookaburra and... Uh, there was some doubt about the merit of using the Duke's ball. Well, seeing good results from Eddie Cowan's point of view. Well, fresh from a double hundred. You can say what you say. want, can't you? Yeah. <laughs> I, do like, I do like Ed Cowan. I think when he opens his mouth, he's worth, he's yeah, worth yeah, listening he to. But, but, I mean, but do you think it's a valid experiment using a different ball? Because I think it is. I think, A, it's good to keep Kookaburra on their toes. B, it gives the players experience playing the different type of ball. Do I think that experience will help us win in Ashes? No way, Mm -hmm. because most of our players who are playing in the Ashes aren't playing in the Shield. So I don't think it works in that sense, but I certainly think it's good for players to face a ball that behaves differently to the Kookaburra. Yeah, I like the idea, but as you say, in terms of uh, using it to prepare for the Ashes, I mean, there's there's absolutely no benefit there because, I mean, how many of these these Shield players are going to be... Are going to be playing England? I'd, no, I agree. Not Man, what about the fact that the Kookaburra is an iconic ball? It's a part of the Australian summer, and you just want to toss it out for some English. Ed Cowan wants to top drop it. it. Well, toss I think you're on his side. No, I'm not on his side. <laughs> I, I think it's a good experiment. I don't. I don't know whether I would toss out the Kookaburra ball. Kookaburra, if you're listening, just remember I said that. Now, <laughs> now let's go into the results from the. The Shield round. Western Australia beat South Australia in a thriller by seven runs. South Australia were chasing 200 in Glenelg, their, one of their home grounds, but were skittled seven short of 200. No centuries were scored on either team, but the bowlers dominated. Chad Sayers took five for 68 and four for 64. Kane Richardson took four for 55 and five for 69. And then young West Australian Simon Macken in his 15th game had an absolute ripper, taking 7 for 81 and 5 for 78. And his match figures of 12 for 159 were the best analysis by any bowler in a Sheffield Shield game since November 2012. Good stuff. Very good stuff. It's uh, it's a good result too in terms of uh, making the second half of this Shield season interesting because for a moment there it looked like Victoria and uh, South Australia were sort of running away with things. Uh, so well done to the WA. They haven't had the greatest season in terms of the Shield. And well done to Simon Mack, and that's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, he's one to watch, only 24, so we'll see uh, if we see him in the Australian side in the next couple of years. New South Wales beat Victoria by innings and 77 runs. Let me start that again. New South Wales thrashed Victoria by innings and 77 runs. You know you're listening, Victorians. (laughs) The star was Ed Cowan with 212, and Peter Neville, ex-Victorian, with 118. I mean, Neville, since he's gone back to Shield cricket, double century before the break, century now, uh, why isn't he going to India? 
That's a very good question. You'd have to say probably from a batting perspective, certainly got the runs on the board to, to be picked ahead of Matthew Wade. What more can he do? From a I, I, I don't, man. I don't. I really don't understand. I want someone to explain it to me. So we've well, got well, one we keeper. Should, well, we won't get much. We've got from three pacemen. Uh, we're setting ourselves up for failure, aren't we? Exactly. So great performance by Cowan and Neville. In can the I, last... Sorry, man. Can I just bring something up quickly out of that game? That, yes. That was probably the most interesting point. Um, Are you saying I missed mine. the most interesting point? <laughs> as good as Ed Cowan was, Nick Maddinson pulled out of that game quite late on. Uh, for well, for personal reasons, uh, I understand he's he's just having a break. I think just to maybe get his head right and try and get away from cricket for a while, get away from you know having to go out to bat and just maybe think about things and and try and regain a little bit of confidence. Do you do you think that's this is a scoop? Do you think this that's is why totally, we've got is that someone the, from the uh, Sydney Morning Herald <laughs> here to get this kind of inside knowledge? Uh, is that the, the best thing for him? Do you think? I mean, personally, I think it's a good idea because he's had a pretty ordinary summer and and I. I don't think it's done his, his head much good. As as tough as he's been to try and kind of bat it out and see it through with the sixes, this is probably the best thing for him. I'd, I'd be curious to get your guys' opinion on this. Well, firstly, if you look at the selections, the gambles Australia took with Renshaw, Hanscom and Maddinson, obviously Maddinson was the one that really didn't work. And I sort of think he'll look back on this summer with some regret. You know, he really struggled in the, when he went back to the Big Bash for, after being dropped from the test side. He's looked sort of... All at sea, he ran himself out in the Big Bash final. I think a break will do him good. Man, I've got to say, like, when you look at those selections when we change the Australian side, you, mate, you toss a coin, one, it's going to fall heads or tails, isn't it? So the selector's got two decisions right and two, two decisions wrong, you can say, with Wade. Wade, yeah. But, and I think we've all said on this that Madison just, he just wasn't ready for it. He wasn't. But he also up for it. hasn't looked good, has he? Since he's come back from the test side, you know, some people they get some. But confidence. mate, he hasn't looked that good for the last few seasons. He came onto the scene and was going to be the next big thing. And then we spoke about this before about you know your man management. What do we say? Your confidence curation, men. I mean, what? So they just discard Madison. Um, Callum Ferguson's another one. There's your debut. There you go. See you later. I just don't mm. think it's a good. And I can understand that. He's in a bit of a mental dilemma at the moment, I mean, Maddinson. He's, he's obviously well, he's probably lost his love for the game momentarily. I think a rest will do him good. I also know that he was one player that was hit quite hard when Phil Hughes passed away. So obviously there's, he's had a tough two, three years and maybe a little break from the game will do him good. What do you think, Bucko? I'd like to see him go away maybe for a couple of weeks. I mean, it'd be good to see him come back before the season ends and... Personally, I mean, when I say go away, I mean don't even go down to the nets for a couple of weeks. Just get yourself away, do something completely different, just to take your mind off things. He made some interesting comments last week about uh, about his summer and about the test selection, and he essentially said, I had my chance and I didn't take it. And, and the way he spoke, he kind of said something to the effect of he wasn't quite sure if he was ready or if he was trying to convince himself he was ready. Uh, which which was an interesting one. And he also alluded to the fact that his form in the Shield match prior to his selection wasn't fantastic. So, you know, I think it's probably fair to say he was rushed in. On talent, he's still a very good cricketer, and he just needs to get that back. That's got to be his first step. I don't think he's he's been blacklined because he's still quite young. He can go back into the Shield over the next few seasons and just make runs and hopefully go back to what he was doing and go back to... Yeah, maybe maybe the form that he was showing in 2012, 13, 14. The rumour I got about Maddinson's selection was that it was a captain's pick, that Steve Smith had the final say on that one, in which case the blame sits in Steve Smith's lap, perhaps, that he got that one wrong and probably it was too much too soon for Nick Maddinson. Uh, so, yeah, let, look, let's just wish him the best. I hope he can yep, have yep, a bit of a rest definitely. and get back out there because you want to see talented young batsmen like him playing and not sitting on the sideline. And then let's wrap up this podcast and this Shield round with some history. Queensland beat Tasmania by 130 runs. That's not the history. The history was we now have a new all-time Sheffield Shield record holder for most dismissals by a wicketkeeper. Chris Hartley has overtaken Darren Berry's record, and Darren Berry was the Victorian keeper for many years, Shane Warne's keeper, Behind the stumps, he had 546 dismissals for the Vicks. Chris Hartley went past that when he caught Simon Malenko to record his 547th dismissal. Goes with his century earlier in the game from Hartley. Great effort for him. 
I'm just wondering, did Darren Berry tweet any congratulations? <laughs> Not sure all? he did. I'm just curious. Geez, we've had some handy keepers in uh, the Shield cricket mm. over the last 30 or 40 years, really, haven't we? Yeah, and Chris Hartley's one of those blokes that just hasn't been good enough to play for Australia, but it's been excellent for Queensland. So congratulations to him. I mean, it's a great record, no, isn't all it? Time but, but your average Ricky... sports fan would know who the hell he is. Yeah. No, but look, mm. that's what this podcast is for. <laughs> and uh, so let's just wrap up the Shield ladder. Victoria, unfortunately, on top on 36.67 points. South Australia second, Queensland third, New South Wales fourth. Western Australia with their win against South Australia are still in touch, but you would think Western Australia and Tasmania have a real tough challenge if they to make the Shield final. Jeez, that's not a uh, complicated points table at all, is it? It's ridiculous. You notice how after the first <laughs> one I decided not to read out the points because they're all like 29.03, 19.7. Anyway, Pat Howell can explain it to us all. <laughs> when are we getting him on the show? <laughs> so, listeners, that was the Australian Cricket Podcast this week. James, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure, man. Hope we can have you back sometime. Yeah, no worries. You passed the Steve War test. Macca, thanks for coming back. We'll, Always a pleasure, We'll be Menace. having you, you on again, apparently, Hopefully. next show you're on, so it's two Hopefully. in a row. Fantastic. Thank you, mate. Listeners, Can't th- wait. Listeners, thanks so much for downloading the show, and we'll be back next week with the Australian Cricket Podcast. What a marvellous stroke. He's played no better shot than that in the whole of the series.